0: Welcome to Simplify. I'm Caitlin Schiller and here with another solo episode for you, I wanted to introduce today's guest uh, very quickly and just get you right into the interview. It's with the wonderful Mina B. She is a licensed social worker. She's a mental health educator and she's author of the book, Owning Our Struggles. Mina's approach to her work is really unique because she strongly emphasizes social justice and community care and mental health. So we talk about a lot of things in this interview. It's a very kind, I think, healing interview, which is very appropriate for Mina because she's all about healing. Um, We'll cover how finding passion and purpose outside of labor can be a kind of healing. We'll talk about what healing actually looks like and what healing in society could look like. And we'll hear what Mina's barometers for success actually are. She says that we create success around tangible objects a lot, especially in the Western world. And she thinks that success looks like something slightly different. I'll talk with you about it in the bookend. Something that Mina and I talk about is what to do with a parent who oversteps your boundaries, which to be honest, at this time of year is a really, really great moment for that kind of guidance. Uh, We'll be spending more time with our families toward the holidays if you are celebrating holidays soon. And, you know, things can get kind of heated. So she has some guidelines for how to tell when it's time to set a boundary, fight back, maybe adjust the degree of closeness with a family member who might be a little bit hostile. But mostly, mostly, this is a kind healing conversation about healing and community and healing ourselves and how we can start on that journey. Okay, see you in the bookend. Hi, Mina. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Caitlin. Of course. Thank you for having me. So we're here today to talk about your debut book, Owning Our Struggles. So you are an author, but you are also many other things. And I would just love to have you introduce yourself the way that you like to be introduced, whatever is most important to you.
1: Yes. Well, thank you. So as you shared, I am the author of the book, Owning Our Struggles. And I'm also a licensed social worker and a mental health educator. My background as a social worker is I used to practice clinical therapy, so I worked with clients who struggled with depression, anxiety, and trauma, um, primarily with women. And as a mental health educator, I now work with corporations on helping them develop psychological safety and becoming inclusive of mental health in the workplace.
0: Lovely. Thank you. And one of the things that I, I think makes your book so unique and special is that you come at self-care and healing from this viewpoint of self-care being community care. And there's this lovely quote, it's self-care is the bridge to community care and community care is the bridge to community healing. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think it makes a lot of sense given your background, but how do you see self-care and community care as being interlinked?
1: So when I talk about self-care being the bridge to community care, what I mean by that is at the end of the day, regardless of the things that happen to us in life, we all have a responsibility to heal ourselves. Because if we don't, if we continue to walk around living in a traumatized body, what we must also understand is that traumatized bodies also have the ability to traumatize other bodies. And so healing is not just for me. Healing is not just for you, it's because my healing also impacts the community that I want to be a part of. And when I make a choice not to heal, that is how you see people having really difficult relationships. You see ruptures happening in relationships because sometimes we can be very eye focused instead of being we-focused. And so community care is pretty much using relationships as a catalyst for change, understanding that we are literally biologically wired to be in relationships with other people. So we are not wired to live in a state of loneliness. We are not wired to be ostracized and removed from society or relationships. We grow when we are a part of connections. And so in order to have healthy relationships and in order to be a part of a community, we have to remember that we bring our full selves in that community. And my full self could be hurting. And in the midst of my hurt, I might be hurting other people. But when I make a choice to change, when I make a choice to grow and evolve and heal, not only am I bettering myself, I'm bettering my community members, which is why the rest of that quote says, community care is the bridge to community healing. Because we can talk about living in a broken world, but we also have to remember that people make the world what it is. You know, the world doesn't just become this thing on its own. It's our contribution to society. So when we do that healing work, not only are we bringing our full selves to communities, but when you have a community of people that are thriving and their quality of life has improved over time, you will also see change in the environment and the world itself.
0: Oh my God. That is such a, a beautiful perspective that I don't think gets, it doesn't get underscored enough really anywhere in mm. pop psychology channels. And I am very much in in this kind of like Instagram world <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and online world, but this, the importance of making the choice to heal because you're making the choice to heal the world around you is so critical. And I'm really glad that you're bringing this perspective here. When you say healing, what do you mean?
1: When I say healing, I say taking action. Mm -hmm. I say self-responsibility. I say self-reflection, self-attunement, self-improvement. All of those things play a role in healing. That is what healing is. It is a lifelong process and a lifelong journey because at the end of the day, life always has its struggles. And so we are always going to have to find ways to be better individuals, and we're always going to have to find ways to become more resilient to issues that we may have never faced before. But in order to do that, we have to be self-aware. We have to be self-reflective. We have to learn to engage in self-attunement, to really be introspective, to understand how things impact us and the way we maneuver through the world. And so when I say healing, those are the things that I'm speaking to, because that's all action. And I can't do any of those things for anyone. And no one can do those things for me. People can bring things to my attention, but if I choose to ignore them, I may not heal. You know, but if people bring things to my attention and I choose to look inward and I choose to engage in self-attunement, where I'm being very introspective and trying to really understand how my behaviors impact other people and how barriers and obstacles and hardships impact me, I will be able to grow and evolve in life, you know, and so that is what I mean when I say the word healing.
0: Mm. So for someone who hasn't really thought all that much about healing themselves, they think they're, you know, they're pretty okay. I remember having that perspective when I was younger before I started to go to therapy. It's been years now thinking I'm all right. I get by and there's this slow waking up to actually maybe I'm not getting by as optimally as I could, what are some signs that a person might have room to take action and start healing? How would someone start to like take an inventory of that and know that maybe they've got some work to do?
1: The first thing I would say is to check in with your nervous system and ask yourself if you find yourself regulated most of the time or dysregulated most of the time. What that looks like is when you are in a dysregulated state, you might ebb and flow between hypoarousal or hyperarousal. So maybe you are always in a chronic state of depression, sadness, low stimulation, and that is what um, hypoarousal looks like. But hyperarousal could look like always feeling on edge, always being anxious, always being in a panicked state, and that's what hyperarousal is. And the reason why those are core signs to pay attention to is because we are impacted by things in life. And when we are exposed to different forms of stimuli, the first part of the body that gets impacted by it is our nervous system. And so that part of the body is going to help us understand how we manage stress, for example, how we deal with burnout, how we deal with overwhelm, how we deal with really difficult circumstances. And so I think for me, what I'm really trying to redefine in my work is our metrics of success in society, because in American culture, I find that we create success around tangible objects, hence the American dream, right? Being able to have a white collar job, you make six figures, you own a home with the white picket fence, you have a nuclear family that you have engaged with and created. And I know a lot of people who use that as the metric of success. And so they tend to say, I don't need therapy or I don't need to heal. Look at how well I'm doing. And when you ask them to define the areas in their life where they think they're doing well, it's all on these tangible outcomes. Right. And then when you ask them to reflect inward and say, well, you know, what about your emotional maturity? What about your ability to have difficult conversations? What about your ability to manage your nervous system? How do you respond when you don't get your way? What happens to you when you face hardship, right? And those, to me, the way you answer that is how I define metrics of success. Because at the end of the day, anybody can work hard enough to try to achieve these checklist items that we've been told are the American dream and the things that we were told that makes us who we are. But this is also why you have a lot of people in society who make a lot of money, own a lot of possessions, and they're still very unhappy or they have poor relationships or they struggle to maintain relationships. They tend to be the common denominator in all of their relationships and why those relationships might be failing Right. And so to me, I feel like if you can't move through the world regulating yourself and being a healthy person, then those checklist items don't really matter.
0: Oof. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's really important to say that one of the things that I really loved about coming to Berlin specifically was that nobody when they met me, nobody asked me, what do you do for a living? And they're not really that interested in what my home looks like. I'm not saying that there isn't superficiality here, but the dream looks like something slightly different. At least here in Germany, it doesn't look like a white picket fence. It doesn't necessarily look like the six-figure job. All that stuff is true, but it's also defined by how well are you? Like, are you healthy? Do you get sick a lot? How are you feeling? And do you have your next vacation planned and where are you going? (laughs) It's, uh, It's really, really different. What are some signs that Say someone you know took this on board, and they've been working on healing. What are some signs that people might not expect that they're starting to heal?
1: Mm. I think some common signs that come up that you wouldn't expect is grief and loss. Mm. I think a lot of people think healing is kind of like glitz and glam, <laughs> mm. and so it's just pretty thing. It's always going to feel good. It's always going to be wonderful. And the reality is healing does come with a lot of grief and loss. And what I'm speaking to is understanding that when you decide to heal and you decide to make different decisions, the first step is to be self-aware and self-reflective and investigate your history, investigate how you operate in life, and pay attention to the behavioral patterns that you have that might be keeping you stuck, keeping you oppressed, possibly oppressing others, and just keeping you in this negative cycle. You might also find that as you do that investigative work, there are people that you call friend. There are people in your life that might be your family You might even realize it's your partner and you might realize that there are people in your life who are negatively impacting your mental health. Mm -hmm. And so the reason why there can be a lot of grief and loss is because if you want to continue to grow and evolve, there are going to be things that you have to let go of. Sometimes it's a mindset. It could literally be the way that you think. I don't think a lot of people realize sometimes their thoughts is literally the key thing that is keeping them stuck because they thought that they knew everything and they were told that this is how things were supposed to be. I was told that the American dream is what would make me a healed and evolved person. And I'm realizing I have a lot of inner work to do and I have to shift that mindset and maybe shifting that mindset does bring up a lot of sadness. I might also realize that now that I'm doing a lot of healing work, I normalized a lot of toxic and dysfunctional behaviors. And there are people in my life who are still upholding those behaviors and also trying to force me to engage in these particular patterns because that's how they met me. They met me when I was in this unhealthy state and they can't seem to accept to see me grow and evolve. And I might have to let those people go. I might also realize that There are people in my family system who are abusive. And this whole time, I thought it was culture. I thought it was tradition. I thought it was normal. And I'm realizing that, no, like I come from a family unit that is either physically abusive or emotionally, mentally, or financially abusive. And I have to now adjust the degree of closeness or I have to just completely shift this relationship and end it completely. And so there's so much grief in trying to evolve because you realize that you're tight-fisted and you're going to have to open up those fists and let certain things go. You're going to have to realize that in order for me to take the next step, in order for me to continue to climb the ladder, I have to let go of the dead weight that is attached to me. And so I do think that that is something that a lot of people don't expect. The other thing I do want to speak to that people don't expect that still ties to this idea that people think healing is glitz and glam is that I see a lot of people believing that when they start to heal and they start to evolve, life is always going to be good. And that is not true. I find a lot of people will beat themselves up because they made a mistake. Mm. or if they find themselves feeling depressed or sad about something and like healing does not mean feeling good all the time and that is the number one thing that I want people to to own and recognize and I talk about it in my book about toxic positivity culture That's where exactly where I wanted to go next. Please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like toxic positivity culture has created this unhealthy belief system that Healing means feeling good all the time and we discard all of the other emotions like sadness or anger or depression or dejection, all of that. We assume that those emotions have no value. And so I always have to feel good in order to thrive. And I, it's just so unrealistic because at the end of the day, we're humans. You cannot eradicate an emotion. So you cannot try to heal and say, my goal is to be happy all the time. That is an unrealistic goal to try and achieve because you can't eradicate feelings.
0: Unfortunately, no. I was talking with a friend the other day who has also gone to some therapy and we're we're in kind of similar life changes right now, which is getting into a, a new relationship after having been single for a really long time. And the opportunity that this experience is presenting is... It's for me and for her in our own separate units here to notice that, oh, wow, I thought I was healed and I still have all this stuff that's coming up and knowing that that's okay. And of course, even if you, you are doing better and you think you're healed, the same stuff that haunted you before, it's still going to come up. You're just aware of it now and you can like maybe take a step back from it and a deep breath and choose how to react rather than just react. That's the only only difference I'm noticing. <laughs>
1: Right, right. And that's the goal, too. Like, you know, when hardship does come, healing is all about how do you respond to these difficult things? And it doesn't mean always responding to it and pretending to be happy about it or pretending it doesn't hurt or always striving to feel good about it. There are going to be things that are hard in life and we're going to have an emotional reaction to those hard things and we have to normalize that.
0: You touched on something else when we were talking or when you were so eloquently speaking about how a person might be able to tell that they're healing. You said that sometimes we might need to let go of, of the dead weight of, I guess, relationships that have been holding us back. And I think one of those that just now I'm seeing talked about more is that sometimes parent-child relationships with adult children are dysfunctional and hurtful. And because of acculturation to it, it's really hard to know what is permissible and what you can and should deal with and, and what you can't. And you speak to this in your book, which I was really happy to see. And I was wondering if, if maybe there are a few clear signs from your perspective that tell you as an adult that you might have a toxic or emotionally abusive parent. Mm-hmm.
1: I think the first thing that we can start to to reflect on as adults is really investigating our childhood and the different ways that our parents may have evolved or they have not evolved. So in my book, I outline clear things that are toxic and problematic. And these things are so toxic and problematic that there are laws behind this, such as child abuse and child neglect, because those things can cause severe harm to a child, even death to a child. And for those who survived it, there's PTSD involved. And so that's why there are even laws in place to say that these things are not permissible and a parent cannot treat their child like this. But what happens where you survived it and now you're an adult, you know, and nobody even knew these things were happening to you. So in a toxic parent-child relationship, I think the number one thing is sometimes the abuse still lingers. And you might have a parent who does try to engage in physical abuse as an adult that is toxic and it is still now a breach of the law because it's assault. And then you can also have parents who engage in emotional abuse. Emotional abuse, I think, in any relationship is really hard to name and call out because we sometimes normalize emotional abuse and we sweep these things under the rug. And so emotional abuse could look like someone pretty much harming you in the ways that they speak to you. And so the ways that they speak to you impacts your self-esteem. It impacts how you see yourself. It could look like those little T's when we talk about trauma, trauma being the big T's and the little T's. We normally talk about the big T's being the physical abuse, the things that are overt and outwardly violent. But the things that are are covert is when a parent really minimizes your feelings. A parent probably bullies you. This does happen in parent-child relationships where a parent will shame their child and engage in things like disguised hostility that I outline in the book. And they might say things like, oh, man, I'm really surprised that you have a date tonight. You gained so much weight and you're so fat now. But like, you know, I'm happy that somebody wants to date you. You know, that sounds right. And I often say, too, like the way your parents talk to you, would you tolerate a friend speaking to you this way? Because sometimes that is the number one way to discern, am I being emotionally abused by my parent? If my friend spoke to me like this, would we still have a friendship? And let's take it a step further. If my partner spoke to me like this, the person that I am in a committed relationship with, Right. Even if I'm married to the person, if they started speaking to me in this way, what I think it's normal, what I think it's healthy, would it make me feel good. So if my parent is doing it, why do they get a pass? And I want people to know that you can call your parents in and say, listen, when you speak to me this way, it hurts when you say these things to me, it doesn't make me feel comfortable. And I think that we all have to find the courage to let our parents know these are the things that don't make me feel good. And ultimately, you know, I think a lot of people struggle with estrangement right now where do I cut my parent off? And that's why in my book, I outline all of these steps to say like, do you feel like you have exhausted all of your resources before you get to a point of estrangement? Because I do think we also have to cultivate the courage to have those hard conversations with our parents, despite how uncomfortable it is to be able to say to your parent, it's really not the things that you say. Sometimes it's also how you say it. And sometimes it is the things that you say, which is why I don't take correction from you, you know, and it, it, it takes a lot of courage to say that to a parent. But I do think when we tap into that courage, we can either see a change or we may not see a change. And when you don't see a change, then you have to ask yourself, what can you tolerate moving forward? And you might have to say, maybe I have to adjust a degree of closeness with my parent or maybe I just have to completely remove myself from this relationship because it's so damaging to my mental health.
0: Mm-hmm. And that is unbelievably hard. To to think of of cutting oneself off from a parental relationship, which is so wonderful that you have this entire section in your book. I I hope that anybody listening who has questions about this will go out and grab it because I think it's a great walkthrough. Thank you for all of that. (laughs) You mentioned in your introduction that a big part of what you do now is, I guess, corporate workshops, essentially, and talking with people about how to avoid burnout and to stay well in the workplace. In chapter six, it's called The Struggle for Fulfillment. You talk about easing into rest and finding passion and purpose outside of labor. Can you just talk a little bit about that? What would it look like to find passion and purpose outside of labor? Because I imagine that some people listening wouldn't really even know where to begin with that. Mm.
1: So, work is a system that is always going to exist. It has always existed and it's not going anywhere. And I I had to talk about work in my book because of those reasons. It's a Mm -hmm. system that we can't dismantle. We can try to adjust the structures of work and the structures of labor. But unfortunately, it is a system of give and take where we have to commit to labor and work in exchange for money so that we can survive. So I think it's important for us to strike a semblance of balance or even a better term, harmony, where we can engage in work, but not make work be the thing that rules our life and not make work be the only thing that we have going for ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think that play, curiosity, adventure is a part of the human experience. It is a part of the healing experience. And I think that when we learn to ease and to rest and we learn to disconnect and we learn to sit with ourselves, we will also be able to improve our mental health and well-being. We are so entrenched in this concept of doing and labor. And even when we're having downtime, like, let me just tap your business card and I want to know what your Instagram is and All of these different things that I think a lot of us don't know how to disconnect and don't even realize disconnecting is still a choice that is available to us, you know. And I am very intentional about disconnecting from the concept of labor and the concept of work all the time and really learning to be present and enjoy, um, just enjoy life in many ways.
0: Mm, I could not agree more. There was, there was a brief point about six or seven years ago when I, I considered moving back to the U.S., to New York City, actually. And I talked with a friend of mine who was living there at the time. And I said, how do you keep up with your friends? And, uh, and she said, Caitlin, we don't have friends here. We have networking events. And <laughs> that's when I knew I was not going to leave Berlin. But to your point, you can make a choice about that. And I just... I hope that for people who are listening, they suddenly become aware that they can do that because the more people Mm -hmm. who notice that there's a choice to be made, I think the more that choice will be made.
1: Yeah. And I think that the reason why I share these things, even on this call, but also in my book is to go back to what you said around like choice. I think so many people are tired and burnt out and we're on this cycle of doing and doing and doing so much that we forget we're not powerless people. We can vote, we can riot, we can do all of these things to create change on a structural level and a systemic level, but on an interpersonal level and a self level, there still is a lot of choice available to us and free will available to us. And we have to figure out what choices align with the goals that we have for ourselves.
0: Yes. You know, we're getting to the end of our time here, but I have kind of a theoretical question for you, which is, what would a community of healed or rapidly healing individuals look like? What would a healthy healing community bring about that's different? Mm. I think if we
1: could witness a, a healthy or lived through, I would say, a healthy and healed community, we would see a decrease in the loneliness epidemic that is currently happening in America right now. And we would see a decrease in that because we would have higher social infrastructures where one, people had accessibility to be able to connect with other people. We would have walkable cities, we would have things in our cities that would allow us to thrive. And then we will also have intentional human beings thriving in these cities who want to connect deeply and want to connect more with one another. I also think that we would see a decrease in the mental health crisis that we are also currently living through. I think we would see a decrease in that because our quality of life would improve. It would improve because we feel safe. It would improve because we feel a sense of belonging. It would improve because we see value in ourselves outside of the labor that we commit to. I also think that it would improve because we would be connected to people in ways that are meaningful. And I also think that we would live longer as human beings. I think that this would literally change our biological framework. And I also think that this would increase our quality of life so much that we would be able to live longer through all the modalities of healing we would be harvesting together, we would be communing together, we would be fellowshipping together, we would literally be breaking bread with one another and feeding one another, we would be protecting one another, we would care about the well-being of each person, you know, and on a systemic level, when we bring in those systems and institutions, there will be structures in place to ensure the longevity of lives by providing quality social infrastructure, better health care, better jobs, higher paying jobs. And so when I talk about community, I am talking about it on a micro and a macro level. And if we could see all of these systems change, I think we would see a decrease in all of the things that plague our society and keeps people unwell.
0: Well, that's a world that I would love to live in.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Same. When we will get there, I don't know, but I, I want to believe that there's a starting point. And I want to believe that we are in a culture that is making waves that maybe this generation or when we age out, we may not even see it. But I do hope that if we continue to commit to this cause of wanting better for ourselves and striving for community, then. Who knows, maybe a hundred years from now, the world that we leave behind will improve.
0: Mina, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. That was a very inspiring note to leave on. <laughs> thank you, Caitlin. Welcome to the book and where we end with books, and also a little bit of a wrap up of that wonderful conversation with Mina B. I mentioned in the intro that Mina's metrics of success in society look a little bit different than the tangible objects that she mentions. What success actually looks like is having a regulated nervous system. And I asked her how we can tell that, that we're healing. What does it actually look like when you start to successfully heal? And she said that answering these questions gives you some kind of indication as to how that work might be going for you. She said, ask yourself, how is your ability to have difficult conversations? How do you respond when you don't get your way? What's your emotional maturity like? And what happens to you when you face hardship? Being able to deal with all of these things in a regulated way, meaning you don't fly off the handle, you don't fall deep into a depression, anxiety doesn't get the best of you, but you're really able to make a response rather than just react That is what success looks like. That is what healing looks like. I thought those were really beautiful ways to signpost the healing journey. And I also wanted to say that for me, this episode drove home another truth that we've heard a lot and simplify lately, which is health and healing and wellness really looks like connection. Mina focuses on community and healing in community. So, of course, this would be her view, but. I found so compelling what she said a vision of a community that is well and healing might look like. She said there would be a decrease in mental health crisis. People would have feelings of safety and belonging. They'd be feeding one another. They'd be protecting one another. They'd be caring about each other's well-being. Health and healing looks like connection. So I guess I want to leave you with one thing, which is, which is this question. Have you been in that kind of community before? Have you been in a community where you felt safety and belonging, where people have fed and protected and cared about you and about your well-being? Maybe that was your family. Maybe it was a time in college. Maybe you haven't had it in a while, or maybe you haven't ever actually had it. But what could you do to create that kind of community? What small steps could you take? This is something that I really want to think about as I wind the year down and as we go into 2024. So. Okay, on that very sweet, tender, heartfelt note, um, I would love to recommend a little bit of additional listening to you. It is a shortcast, actually. You will find it in the Blinkist app. It is a shortcast of the podcast, The One You Feed with Eric Zimmer, and it's an episode that he did with Dr. Ken Truck, who wrote Raising an Aging Parent: Guidelines for Families and the Second Half of Life. It is a really, really wonderful episode that sort of walks you through some considerations to have while you're dealing with your aging parents' care or an aging relative's care, the things that you could start to think about and and what kind of losses they might be undergoing, not just your own loss about losing them as a family member, but also what their considerations might be and how to better empathize with what they are experiencing and also how to strategize around having better end-of-life experiences together. So again, that's the One You Feed Shortcast with Eric Simmer. It's the episode with Dr. Ken Druck, and you'll find it if you just search for it in the Blinkist app. All right, that's it for today. That wraps up this episode of Simplify. Simplify was produced by me, Caitlin Schiller, Ben Schumann-Stoller, Maria Levichik, Stefan Obadia here at Blinkist headquarters in Berlin, Germany. If you would like to try Blinkist free for 14 days, go ahead and go to Blinkist.com slash friends, and type in the code healing. That means that you'll get to listen to that shortcast with Dr. Ken Druck and lots of other wonderful stuff right there in the app. Hope you enjoy it. All right. till next time, check it out.